0: Welcome to the Library of Mistakes, changing the world one mistake at a
1: time. Hello, this is a special episode recorded live at the Library of Mistakes on the 15th of November 2023, in which economist Patrick Schotanus discusses his important new book, Market Mind Hypothesis. Patrick is introduced by Russell Napier.
2: A very special night here at the Library of Mistakes because we're going to talk about the future and usually we just talk about the past. We're going to talk about the future of economics, why it needs changed, and how we're going to change it. So the, uh, this charity, for those of you who don't know, is involved in various different things. Uh, it began in 2004, 20 years ago really, when we launched a course called The Practical History of Financial Markets. Now no one also as the Advanced Valuation in Financial Markets. Uh, And it teaches people about financial history and how you can learn from the past. Now, this is chipping away, actually, at the superstructure of economics slash finance slash investment. But you've got to start somewhere. So we've been chipping away for 20 years on the basis that there's more to finance than the Excel spreadsheet, a discounted cash flow, and the ferocious decimal point. This library, in some ways as well, tries to chip away at that superstructure of what economics-slash-finance-slash-investment has become and has been doing so for 10 years. But it is very much chipping away at the superstructure. Anybody, I think anybody, certainly involved in the practice of investment uh, realizes that there is something more fundamentally wrong than a few bits and pieces bolted onto the superstructure. But there is something wrong at the foundations. Uh, And that's why Didasco has been delighted to support Patrick uh, in his work, which is looking back to the foundations of economics slash finance and investment. Uh, We have put over 1,500 students through this course, most of them professional investors, but have we changed much? Well, maybe we've changed something, but it certainly isn't very much. Now, Patrick goes to the foundations. Foundations, actually, that were laid by others initially. Adam Smith, one thinks of particularly in his theory of moral sentiments. Frank Knight and even Lord Keynes, all who saw a very different centre for economics, uh, a centre that is very different, radically different, from the man, and he is called the man, who has come to dominate the very centre and core of what economics is, the rational economic man. He wasn't always here. There used to be something else. Smith certainly didn't believe in him, nor did Knight and Nordic Keynes. And the beautiful thing about living in our modern age is there are breakthroughs that help us find out who this person, let's stop calling him a man, really is. Breakthroughs in neuroscience, breakthroughs in philosophy and psychology that help us find what is the real driver rather than homo economicus. Because looking around the room tonight, I know three things about everybody in this room. Uh, One, you're not all rational. Two, you're not all driven by economic considerations alone. And three, you're not all men. But apart from that, homo economicus is a rather accurate core of what's going on here. So where did he come from and how do we get rid of him? Well, I want to read you from Frank Knight, writing in 1925, who I think explains very well where this rational economic man came from. Surely the man who would undertake to treat human society merely as material for scientific manipulation, to control it by finding the laws of its responses to stimuli and devising stimuli to provoke the responses he might desire, would have to be classed as a monster or an imbecile. He might have abundant intelligence of the scientific sort but would be lacking in sense. In other words, He was invented, this rational economic man, by somebody who wanted to control things. Somebody who thought if they could find this automaton to stimulate, then they could manage the economy. Not through observation, not through facts, but through a need to want to control. So we have this need for scientific manipulation, and I think that is where this monster came from. Who's monster? Marshall's monster? Samuelson's monster? Doesn't really matter. But in my lifetime, or in the last 20 years, the monster's had a few problems. Because like the black knight in Monty Python, his limbs are being hacked off. His limbs have been hacked off one by one by, by behavioural finance. He is no longer this rational being. There are a few predictable, apparently, and systemic behavioural biases and one by one, the great black knight, that is the rational economic man, is losing his limbs. But for those who know Monty Python, you will know that the black knight is convinced that it is only a flesh wound. So perhaps tonight, we are here to drive a, a sword through the heart of that rational economic man. Now, the MMH, the market mine hypothesis, is a new approach, fortunately, pulling upon all this work that's already been done very recently in neuroscience, uh, philosophy, psychology, and other disciplines. And just over a year ago, we held a symposium. Did Asco help fund a symposium, uh, which brought all these disciplines together. And very soon, Patrick and the MMH will be moving into the Edinburgh uh, Futures Institute, which is a new and exciting part, a multidisciplinary part of the Edinburgh University. And that's where he should be, but not in the economics department. Because perhaps, even now, this is just too blatant and too frightening for the economics profession. So, what is it that drives us if it's not the rational economic man? Well, let's ask Adam Smith, writing in 1759 in his Theory of Moral Sentiments. The man of system, on the contrary, is apt to be very wise in his own conceit and is often so enamored with the supposed beauty of his own ideal plan of government that he cannot suffer the smallest deviation from any part of it. He seems to imagine that he can arrange the different members of a great society with as much ease as the hand arranges the different pieces upon a chessboard. He does not consider that in the great chessboard of human society, every single piece has a principle of motion of its own, altogether different from that which the legislator might choose to impress upon it. I can't think of a definition more radically different from the rational economic man than every single piece has a principle of motion of its own. And now, thanks to breakthrough in modern science, we can begin to look to see what that principle of motion is. And that is what the market mind hypothesis is, and that's what its research is to finally look and to finally get a better grasp of the principle of motion of us, of human society, that lies at the core of economics. If you're interested in joining us in the crusade against the Black Knight, then we welcome donations to this new pursuit at the Edinburgh Futures Institute, and you two can pick up a sword and finish him off. Patrick, over to you.
0: Thank you, Russell, for that uh, kind introduction. And welcome, everybody, to my talk, um, which will introduce the MMH in general, and um, my book, of which you see a screenshot behind me of the book cover uh, in particular. In other words, what you hear this evening, you can read in more detail in my book. Um, The aim of our research, which is undertaken by a growing group of uh, collaborators, is to revamp economics indeed, no more, no less especially by improving our understanding of Mr. Market, which, as many of you know, is a moniker for the financial markets, Um, specifically the um, collectivity of investors and especially their mentality, Um, and um, interacting, as they do, with the real physical economy, which is a very important connection. Um, Einstein once said, allegedly or not, that you need to, we need to make things as simple as possible, but not simpler. And I've taken that advice to apply to my talk, realizing that certain topics will remain difficult. There are different types of presentations, and I like to think of my talk, metaphorically, as taking you up the tallest tree in a very large forest. And the aim is to reach the top or as high as, as possible to give you an overview of everything that is of relevance to the MMH. And along the way, I'm taking you sometimes on a side route along a branch, even along some of the very thin twigs, which may make you feel a bit uncomfortable because it's a bit wobbly. But it's important to um, have a specific look at specific areas of the forest or specific trees in order to get, eventually, that overall overview. And I promise I will always return to the main trunk of the tree. Regarding the book, the foreword was kindly contributed by Russell, the intermezzo by neuroscientist and complexity pioneer Scott Kelso, and the afterword by philosopher Julian Kaiferstein. On my last slide, I will share with you some further praise and recommendations of the book. Um, by interdisciplinary experts, many of whom were speaking, as Russell was saying, at our inaugural symposium in Pamir House last year. And Scott and Julian also uh, spoke at that uh, symposium. Due to time constraints, I can't cover all of our research. Uh, Specifically, uh, the MMH submits the two-legged premise for the market mind principle. Those two legs are mind as market and market as mind. And tonight, I will focus on the second leg, market as mind. But it is important to realize that both legs are connected. In other words, there are a lot of similarities between markets and minds. And I'll show you some of those in one of my slides. In terms of uh, terminology, when I talk about economics, please remember that it includes the nested discipline of finance and a nested practice of investment. The quotes you see here, um, I put them on early deliberately because I hope you have had some time to read them. They set the scene for my talk. I particularly point you to the bottom two, which I highlighted in blue. The first one is by Frank Knight, economist, almost a century ago, pointing out the blind spot in mainstream economics, namely the reality of consciousness in markets, and second, the flaw in mainstream economics, namely treating humans as mechanisms. And then below that, more recently, in a book that I uh, identified here, in actually in the Library of Mistakes, I think it's standing somewhere there, by D.J. Sornette, who concluded that the global behavior of the market is a reminiscence of the emergence of consciousness. Besides reflecting the topic of the MMH uh, as a theory, they hint at the practical challenge. And this was um, nicely expressed by investment legend Howard Marks um, during my interview with him for his session of the uh, inaugural symposium last year, when I asked him how what cognitive science should investigate that would be most beneficial to investors. And Howard immediately uh, answered market mood. And I'll explain how market mood is related to consciousness and fits into the broader context of the MMH. Besides the earlier tree metaphor, um, these quotes also reflect part of my style of presenting as well as writing, whereby I uh, use quotes to weave my story around. And there are two reasons for this. First, I subscribe to Michel de Montaigne's dictum, which is, I quote others in order to better express myself. In other words, why reinvent the wheel when you can give credit to those who already earlier beautifully worded the arguments you're trying to make? The second reason is that after 30 years in investment management, I like to think of myself as a pracademic, but I'm not an expert in all the fields that are relevant for the MMH. So I'd like you to hear it from the horse's mouth. Um, And that's why I quote these various experts to help me make the case of the MMH. Let me start with the elevator pitch, and I'm only going to take you to the first floor, so to speak. The MMH is a so-called post-cognitivist interpretation of cognitive economics, which, as I'll explain later, is a partnering of cognitive science and economics. And it attempts, the MMH attempts, to formalize what investors have always casually referred to as the market mind. And in one of my later slides, I'll show you some screenshots of books where this reference is explicitly made. And that is the Market Mind, warts and All. And I'll come back to that as well. The MMH is based and informed by cognitive science, especially four e cognition. And the four e stand. For, they, they, it views the mind as embodied, embedded, and active, and extended. Those are the four e's. And again, i come back to that in in a moment. It leads overall to an improved understanding and hopefully also treatment of markets, um, as well as by extension the wider economic system, away especially from that flawed and outdated mechanical worldview on which mainstream economics is based. In turn, this will benefit society, and as many of you know, that was something that Adam Smith was very much concerned with. And this is why, in all modesty, um, we like to think of the MMH as our contribution to new economic enlightenment. So how did we get here that we're challenging this paradigm? Why are heterodox theories not only the MMH, but also think of humanomics, which is promoted by Nobel laureate Vernon Smith and Deirdre McCloskey, but also narrative economics promoted by Yale's Robert Schiller, or even the adaptive markets hypothesis promoted by Andrew Lowe at MIT. Why are they being developed? There are various reasons for it, but an important one is all the economic crisis that we've seen over the past decades. Perhaps starting with in 1987, Black Monday, where portfolio insurance and mechanistic investment strategies contributed to the crash. That was followed roughly a decade later by the collapse of LTCM, a hedge fund. Then we had, of course, the global financial crisis, the GFC. Um, We had repo collapse just before the COVID crisis, and more recently, the UK's LDI crisis and various bank runs. They were all characterized by a dangerous tail wagging the dog, whereby the financial economy, consisting of markets and securities, and it is the psychological financial uh, economy, was threatening the real physical economy, consisting of markets in goods and services. The GFC, of course, in particular, was not just just systemic, but was existential. And the term financial Armageddon was used for a reason. Seth Klarman, founder of Baupost, an investment fund, called it in his 2009 investment letter a life and death experience. In short, these crises raised so many questions and issues, perhaps starting with the one asked on behalf of the public by the late Queen Elizabeth during her visit to the London School of Economics, where she asked this famous question, why did nobody see it coming? Now, we all appreciate, of course, the need for decorum during those events. But what she was actually asking, of course, was, why did nobody of you, the experts, see it coming? A few academics acknowledged this. And important for the MMH, there was the conclusion by Akerlof and Schiller that we will not understand important economic events unless we confront the fact that their causes are largely mental in nature. For them, this was a throwaway comment. But in cognitive science, mental causation is a very important and complex topic Therefore, if we agree with Akerlof and Schiller's conclusion, and I think we should, then we need cognitive science to help us investigate this further. Larry Summers, as usual, was more blunt. Something is wrong with the economics profession if it doesn't change its thinking. And all of this is part of this economic soul search. More recently, Edinburgh's own Angus Deaton identified that there is a deep flaw in economics. And uh, as I will explain, the MMH has identified this deep flaw as the blind spot of mainstream economics about the reality of consciousness in markets, and by extension, the mind-body problem. There were policymakers, too, participating in this soul search. Jerome Powell acknowledging that the linkages among monetary policy, asset prices, and the mood of financial markets are not fully understood. And then there was um, Trichet saying that the models were not very helpful. Finally, of course, importantly, the practitioners, those embodied in the market with skin in the game, who feel, in the words of Howard Marks, the market's temperature. So Soros emphasizing again, financial markets are not supposed to have moods, yet they do. And in his case, he was struggling with the inherent dualism in the economic system, as he worded it, the relationship between the mental mode of thinking and actual physical state of affairs. In the literature, there are numerous quotes, usually of anonymous traders and investors, who talk about market mood and a sense of this mood. And uh, the researchers for this quote, Knorr and Brueger listed this under intersubjectivity with the market, which I will return to in a moment. First, what is our take on this? These crises should not be seen as independent incidents. The MMH argues that underlying these is a structural ongoing crisis caused by the wrong theory based on a flawed mechanical worldview, which creates, implements, and justifies policies, regulations, strategies, including investment strategies, and other practices, which hurt markets and uh, conscious agents that inhabit them. In other words, economics is not an innocent bystander. So not only is there a blind spot, as identified by the late queen, but there is also an elephant in the room, because it is not being addressed. And that is the reality of consciousness in markets. Instead. The man of system, as Russell already uh, uh, identified, and as Smith calls these central planners, have been doubling down on flawed thinking. On the neoclassical side, it is doubling down on the assumption of rationality. In behavioral economics, it is doubling down on keeping identifying biases and heuristics, which is not very helpful. But also think here of systematic, mechanized, um, investment strategies, for example, which fall in the same trap as my book explains. So in light of the need and wish to revise the paradigm, developing an alternative hypothesis seems opportune. And it's not just um, theories, but there are other initiatives along the same line under, underway, like the Institute for New Economic Thinking, co-founded by George Soros, but also a movement called Rethinking Economics, started by young scholars. And our research wants to contribute to this debate. So let's look a little bit more at mainstream's mechanical worldview. So the main flaw in in mainstream economics, ignoring the reality of consciousness, originates in its mechanical or computational paradigm, also called worldview, which was revealingly captured by Robert Lucas, one of the founders of mainstream economics, and especially the rational expectations hypothesis, when he stated, and I quote, economics is something that can be put on a computer and run. This is what I mean by the mechanics of economic development, the construction of a mechanistic artificial world populated by the interacting robots that economics typically studies. That is his economics. This is why we call it mechanical economics. And as I said, it also reaches into practices, as my book also discusses in detail. Now, there's a lot of criticism on this. And Joan Robertson, another economist who is critical of the rational expectations hypothesis, suspects there is a psychological complex here. And I quote her. There is an irresistible attraction about the concept of equilibrium with an almost silent hum of a perfectly running machine. The apparent stillness of the exact balance of counteracting pressures. The automatic smooth recovery of a chance disturbance. Is there perhaps something Freudian about it? The flaw is ontological. It is about the essence and nature of economic entities across all levels. Motivated by so-called physics envy, and George Soros, Philip Mirowski, Andrew Lowe have criticized this. Mainstream's mechanical worldview, or what Knight calls mechanical monism, considers the economy to be a machine, the market an automaton, and their agents to be robots. And as you'll notice, none of them have consciousness. Instead, this worldview suggests we're dealing with mechanical entities that can be treated as such, specifically. They can be controlled and engineered towards predetermined outcomes. So metaphorically, you pull a handle here, you push a button there, and you turn a knob in the middle, and the mechanical machine will work fine. Mixed with some Keynesian central planning, this obviously is very appealing to Smith, man of system. After all, subscribe to concentrated power and control, which includes not only uh, many governments and their central banks but also large corporations. How is this manifested? So I'm going to give you some examples and I focus on the blue highlighted terms. So macro manifestations include central planning and social engineering. On the business side there is corporatocracy and regulatory capture. And on the operation side there is a growing automation point, as Shoshana Zuboff of Harvard pointed out, there is surveillance capitalism. Then there are economic practices, many based on excessive or wrong mathiness. And that last term was introduced by Paul Romer, former economist of the World Bank. But Deirdre McCloskey, and more recently Brian Arthur, also criticized this. So think of quantitative analysis, developing and applying financial models, but also economic models, like GSG models. Then there is financial monetary engineering, designing and using financial products, including derivatives, but also monetary policies, like inflation targeting, yield curve control, and quantitative easing and tightening. And then finally, importantly, systematic investing, mechanizing the full investment process, varying from passive investing to high frequency trading to LDI and risk management practices based on value at risk. This reflects, all these reflect an overconfidence in and over reliance on control and engineering. The problem is that mechanization begets mechanization. But if you want to address this or discuss this, you encounter a barrier with the man of system. And here I have paraphrased both Upton Sinclair and Charlie Munger that it is difficult to get a man, in our case a man of system, to address a problem when he is incentivized to ignore it. There's also an overconfidence in, when we look at it in the framework of dual uh, system thinking, for the analytical mind or system two, right? That logic and rationality to explain behavior. The problem here, as Smith already pointed out, is that our mentality includes internal sentiments as impression in addition to external behavior as expression. And related to this, is an overconfidence in analytical and computational tools. We don't have these tools for system one, which could some bring some balance in the dual uh, system uh, uh, mind, as uh, Gerd Gerenzer and others have argued also. We need new tools and methods. So the problem is that this leads to automation bias. More generally, The problems start when this mechanical worldview is turned into those aforementioned practices that wield real world influence. In other words, where perhaps initially innocent uh, ivory tower thought experiments and simulations materialize into market machinations and manipulations, particularly of prices, but also market share. Think here of monopolies, buying up and otherwise eliminating disruptors to create and protect so-called modes, because that will protect the status quo. So we can do the same thing again and again. It leads to behavior that reduces diversification and increases imbalances in the collective market mind. It's reflected, for example, in crowded trades, moral hazard, a decrease in productivity growth, and a decline in new firm formations. In short, it is detrimental to free markets, and by extension, free market minds, again, at all levels. Talking about freedom, and just to clarify and to emphasize, the MMH is sympathetic to libertarianism. Think here the Austrian School of Economics. However, it doesn't need the politics of it. Instead, the MMH uses arguments from cognitive science to make the case of free minds. Let me close this slide by sharing a different quote from Frank Knight, who beautifully hits the point home. And I quote, the power of mechanistic logic over common sense is great. But it does not extend to making the plain man deny that he and his fellows are conscious beings moved by conscious interests. Once more, one who denies the significance of consciousness is simply putting the abstract criteria of a logical system ahead of the fundamental in this case, psychophysical, principles, which form the only foundation for that system itself. I mentioned the market mind, warts and all. Mr. Market is not perfect. But the imperfection can get worse. There's nothing mechanical, namely, about consciousness. Treating conscious entities mechanically is disastrous in general. Think here of brainwashing, of cults, of propaganda, etc. For markets in particular, it distorts and eventually removes price discovery. <laughs> Think here of Jack Bogle's acknowledgement regarding passive investing. If it would become dominant, markets would collapse. He acknowledged this during a visit at the shareholder meeting of Berkshire Hathaway a number of years ago. Specifically, the rinse-repeat of if-then and similar algorithms embedded in the manifestations on the previous slide risk positive feedback loops. Here are examples of mechanically-induced crises that turned in varying degrees systemic, and I've already mentioned uh, most of them, so I'm going to go through it fairly quickly. Black Monday with portfolio insurance. Roughly 10 years later, LTCM with systematic leverage strategies, the bursting dot com uh, bubble with auto trading algorithms, the importantly, the GFC with the tail wagging the dog dynamic, the flash crash with high frequency trading, the repo crisis before the COVID crisis, and then more recently, LDI and digital bank runs. To conclude this slide, Economics as a theory, as I said, is not an innocent bystander, let alone objective observer, like some other sciences are. It creates, justifies, and implements policies, regulations, strategies, and other practices based on its mechanical worldview, which subsequently mechanically impact the real and financial economies. This conflicts with the natural self-organizing principles of conscious minds, which is more akin to complexity by way of spontaneous exchanges aimed at discovery, especially of value. Many of the symptoms of our current economic predicament can be explained along these lines. For example, growing debt and growing inequality, which both simply reflect the mechanical automatic repetitions that cause such growth. Rinse, repeat. Rinse, repeat. Think here also, again, of something that Einstein said, and I quote, Insanity is doing the same thing over and over, but expecting different results. So, we need to revamp economics, and a good place to go is cognitive economics, whereby the MMH is a particular interpretation. And I, in a moment, I'm going to take you to the second floor with my elevator pitch. Cognitive economics, and for this slide I will shorten it as CE and compare it to BE, behavioral economics. CE is a partnering, as I said, of cognitive science and economics. And cognitive science itself is a multidisciplinary field that includes AI, neuroscience, philosophy, psychology, and sociology. And combined, it studies the mind in all its aspects, including consciousness, and its collective dimension, which is of relevance here. For those hearing this with some skepticism and perhaps not familiar with developments along what I like to call that final frontier of mentality consciousness, for the past 25 years, a consensus has emerged that, in the words of neuroscientists Giulio Tononi and Christoph Koch, means that, and I quote, the study of consciousness is becoming a science, and that is within consciousness science. As I mentioned, the MMH is a post-cognitivist interpretation of CE, and post-cognitivism follows cognitivism and computationalism, which in turn followed um, Skinner's behaviorism. MMH is centered on a revision of our understanding of the human mind, from that of a mechanical brain-bound computer with some hard and software to that of a complex adaptive system that is embedded, enacted, um, extended, and um, embodied. So embodied, think, for example, of the famous back pains of George Soros that complemented whatever he was doing with the brain to make his trading successful. This is called, as I mentioned, 4E cognition that backs and informs the MMH. Briefly, a few words on the difference between BE and CE. Whereas BE focuses on the external, namely the expression of mentality um, via behavior, reflecting, again, its Skinner legacy, CE focuses on the internal, namely the impression of mentality, what it is like to undergo a mental state. Think, for example, of anger. When you're angry, internally, you're boiling inside. But externally, you express it differently. For example, via yelling, and both have different consequences. Second, in terms of dual process and dual um, system thinking, this is the thinking fast and thinking slow that is popularized by Daniel Kahneman. I'd like to make two points. In contrast to the BE consensus, CE does not demonize System 1 or S1. But it judges S1 and S2, so system 2, according to their particular benefits and shortcomings. In other words, CE gives credit and criticizes both Kahneman and Gigerenzer. Second point, consciousness plays the role of an overlay of system 3. That's how you should think about it. The technical reasons for this, which I explain in the book, I'm not going to go into it here, but I, I will try to make it more intuitive for you. How can you make the distinction between S1 and S2 in the first place? In other words, how can you subjectively as an individual know the difference between S1 and S2? Well, in a way, that's simple, right? Because they are experienced distinctively. Specifically, being emotional feels completely different than being rational. More broadly, the MMH um, states, and, and others have written about this, that this S3 uh, complements this dual system thinking. And as I said, I'm going to take you to the second floor in a moment, but I also I, I, I told you that I'm going to show you some screenshots of books where there are specific references to the market mind. And most prominently, upper left there is the bestseller by George Soros, which, which is subtitled Reading the Mind of the Market. But technically, the MMH submits that the market embodying numerous conscious humans and their technologies intersubjectively extends investors' minds, whereby it not only distributes their knowledge in a Hayekian sense, but also manifests collective consciousness. And prices are the main informational signatures of this, while market mood is the immersive experience, phenomenally speaking, especially in real time, varying from, say, despair to exuberance. Let me explain a few terms here. On intersubjectivity, Javal Harari in Sapiens states, the intersubjective is something that exists within the communication network, think here, market, linking the subjective consciousness of many individuals. We can, in turn, link this to Frank Knight, when he states, communication between consciousnesses is the fundamental fact of knowledge and the nearest we can ever get to an ultimate in human experience. The next thing to clarify is that this is about shared experience between subjects, in this case, while exchanging. I cannot trade with myself, neither can you. Therefore, in the anonymous financial markets, we all trade with Mr. Market, this collective entity. Another Uh, clarification, market mood is not market sentiment. Market sentiment is what investors try to capture analytically, via bull-bear ratio, put call spreads, or the VIX index. But mood is not and cannot be conveyed in a static way. It requires new research methods and tools, inspired by cognitive science. And developing these is part of our research program. More broadly, let's be very clear what we're talking about here, namely extended consciousness. And our first cue comes from the seminal paper in 1998 by Andy Clark and David Chalmers, who opened their paper with the now famous question, where does the mind stop and the rest of the world begin? Which we can paraphrase for our purposes as where does the investor's mind stop and the rest of the market begin? In other words, where's the cutoff? Michael Kirchhoff and Julian Kaiverstein hit the general point home, and I quote The position we defend here is that the mind has no fixed boundary. The locus of conscious experience can smoothly shift from, on occasions being inside of the head of the individual, to on other occasions forming out of a nexus of interactions between brain, body, and environment. End quote. So it becomes intersubjective, coming back to that word once the environment consists of or includes other conscious minds. In cognitive terms, markets show a supercharged and supersized version of what Clark and Chalmers called active externalism. For example, our collective state of believing is out there, namely in the constitution of prices, with securities acting as shared physical scaffolding, as I'll explain in the book. In the final analysis, we have to get to the conclusion that the notorious mind-body problem is extended into the wider economic system. For example, at the macro level, reflected in what I mentioned before, Arkelov and Schiller's mental causation, the still wagging the dog between the psychological market and the physical real economy. Now, some of you may not be familiar with the mind-body problem, but it has confounded philosophers and scientists for centuries. It basically asks to explain the relationship between matter, i.e. the brain, and mind, i.e. conscious experience. Another way of stating this is how our physiology gives rise to our psychology, especially its qualities, known as phenomenality, transmitted via sentience. For example, your brain physically processing a 25% drawdown in your portfolio, which is all about quantity, is accompanied by the feeling of hurt, which is all about quality, of that painful loss. So how is the quality of experiencing a drawdown related to the neurons that physically carry the signal? Consistent with physicalism, the efficient market hypothesis considers this as aepi-phenomenal and not relevant. However, if that is the case, then the hurt of pain from a losing trade is causally inert, which contrasts with the practical reality that it actually often leads to the physical action of closing that trade, irrespective of whether this is rational or not. I'm going to share some similarities between markets and mind because as I said at the beginning, they have a lot in common, and it is one of the main themes of the MMH. The general similarities were already recognized in economics, for example, by Hayek, and cognitive science by Kelso and Glimpscher. And both fields have that shared final frontier of consciousness. And a quick... Uh, definition is that it, consciousness is about dual realization, namely the physical production complemented by phenomenal consumption of information, and I'll get back to that in a moment. It starts with the ancient ideas of group and crowd minds in both Eastern and Western traditions, and I have many references and sources in the book. Evolutionary psychologist John Tooby later Leda Cosmides in an important paper in 1994 in the American Economic Review linked this to Adam Smith when they argued that, and I quote, natural selection's invisible hand created the structure of the human mind. And the interaction of these minds is what generates the invisible hand of economics. Coming back to that shared final frontier, in cognitive science, philosopher David Chalmers made a crucial observation that, the MMH submits, applies to both the individual and the collective extended mind, like the market mind. I quote Chalmers now. When an experience realizes an information state, the same information state is realized in the experience's physical substrate. We might even suggest that this dual realization is the key to the fundamental connection between physical processes and conscious experience. We need some sort of construct to make the link, and information seems as good a construct as any. We might put this by suggesting as a basic principle that information in the actual world, think prices here, has two aspects, physical and phenomenal aspect. So here are a few specific similarities which I'll run through fairly quickly. Like neurons, securities pass on information, especially via prices. They cluster by way of assets, industries, etc. And they are centrally housed in exchanges, just like neurons are in the brain and elsewhere in our body. Like a free mind, a free market mind can show spontaneous order. It doesn't need a central executive, in this case, an auctioneer. In both cases, there is no homunculus. They can be Bayesian, testing hypotheses. Sometimes they're awake, at other times, they're asleep. They both allocate resources, and they can both lose consciousness. In the market's case, Lehman almost caused the coma. So in conclusion, price discovery, involving the simulcasting of information from the market mind's cortical regions, leads to the market's awareness, phenomenally experienced by investors, as mood. I thus didn't exaggerate when I mentioned the deep-seated connection between minds and markets. Investor consciousness extends when information is realized both physically and phenomenally in a market's mind via the concentrated numerical format of prices. In other words, prices form our construct, to use Chalmers' term. They are the informational building blocks acting as conductors to collectively bridge mind and matter in our efforts to benefit from and or hedge against states of the world. Among others, this should change our view, not just of what prices are, but what they do. In turn, this has implications for how we investigate them and thus also for our policies and practices. Specifically, mechanical analysis methods do not capture mood. And we need to develop new research methods and tools which leads me back to our research program. And these are the last two slides which I will discuss quickly. Um, The MMH research program, um, if all goes well, will be hosted by the Edinburgh Futures Institute and housed in that beautifully newly renovated building along Lauriston Place that I assume many of you have seen. Our program consists of four pillars, uh, research projects, events, Um, a book from which I will derive a course and consulting. And um, among the events are guest lectures. And our inaugural guest lecture will be delivered in early December um, by the brilliant Derder McCloskey. Um, For the events in December, we have a few places less uh, over. So if you're interested, let Russell or David or myself know. And we created a research manifesto which includes descriptions of the planned projects. And it's included in Appendix 2 in my book. Here are um, a number of growing collaborators, which I credit hereby. Um, Many of them were um, speaking at uh, the inaugural uh, symposium. And as you can see there of those previous speakers, it's an eclectic bunch. Um, interdisciplinary academics but also investors and policy makers. I promised you also some further praise and recommendations for the book that you can see here, a selection of, the rest are, are in, in the beginning of the book and uh, I just want to conclude by emphasizing that the MMH is still under construction and our program is like a start uh, with my book as a guide. It is said by Arthur Schopenhauer and others that there are three phases in the acceptance of a new idea like the MMH. Roughly, at first, they ignore it. Then they criticize it. And finally, they copy it and state it was obvious. And there I go along. I believe we're moving into phase two now. Expressed in terms of the movie The Matrix, we're basically offering you the red pill. To wake up from that flawed mechanical worldview. I also started with the image of climbing a tall tree. Well, with our research, we also go deep down. So, via our papers, my book, guest lectures, etc., we're showing you how deep the psychophysical rabbit hole of economics is by exploring how minds and markets are related. This ultimately leads to the market mind principle I mentioned intelligence, sometimes conscious self organization via market dynamics centered on exchange to discover values. This supports that reflexive two-way premise. Mind is market, and market is mind. For more information, I refer you to some sources there. Thank you for your attention. Happy to answer questions, I guess, after the interview. Right, thank you.
2: Patrick, I've been doing my job for 25 years forecasting the markets. I've annoyed quite a few people, but I think you're going to beat me and annoy quite a few more than I have. So sure. you ran us through at the end the, uh, the system where we are. So what is the pushback? Uh, I mean, obviously we didn't arrive at this current view of economics without a lot of very clever people doing a lot of research. So what is it about uh, the MMH that uh, you get the pushback on? And what do you expect to get the pushback on? Because it is a, a really radical, different approach coming from a different uh, different uh, disciplines.
0: Yes. So if I can um, put the uh, uh, pushback and criticism in, in in two categories, perhaps surprisingly, there is the 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 category or the group of um, parties. That one way or another uh, try to monopolize new economic thinking or uh new economic enlightenment or any of that and 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 the m m h is if 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 people if people realize it is a very powerful theory so it's it's considered as a as a threat now the second category are the usual suspects so that is Uh, mainstream uh, economics, which we call mechanical economics, which basically is a partnering of the strange bedfellows of new classical economics and new Keynesian economics. And uh, as some of you know, uh, Milton Friedman was one of the founders there as well, and he argued that um, uh, assumptions basically don't matter in terms of realism. Um, And if you encounter them in in the discussion, uh, I, I like to, to, to um, explain this by uh, quoting um, Robert Solow, who um, is a mainstream economist, but was very critical of uh, Robert Lucas and Tom Sa- uh, Thomas Sargent and, and uh, 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 basically new classical economics, because they don't want to discuss the assumptions, whereas Deere McCloskey and others have said the assumptions are crucial. And obviously, the assumptions that I, that I argue that it's, it's crucial. But here is um, Solow's uh, uh, famous Bonaparte anecdote, which I will quote. Suppose someone sits down where you are sitting right now and announces to me that he is Napoleon Bonaparte. The last thing I want to do with him is to get involved in a technical discussion of cavalry tactics at the Battle of Ortlitz. If I do that, I'm getting tacitly drawn into the game that he is Napoleon. (laughs) If I do that, um, now Bob Lucas and Tom Sargent like nothing better than to get drawn into technical discussions, because then you have tacitly gone along with their fundamental assumptions. Their attention is attracted away from the basic, your attention is attracted away from the basic weakness of the whole story. Since I find that fundamental framework ludicrous, I respond by treating it as ludicrous, in his case, by laughing at it. So as not to fall into the trap of taking it seriously and passing on to matters of technique. And this quote actually is in a fantastic book by Ayo Klamer. He, He wrote this 40 years ago, Conversations with Economists. And I've said to Russell, it should be here in the library, because it's a fantastic historic document of how people thought about those days and where we are now with our predicament. So that's my long-winded answer to your okay. first question.
2: Well, fortunately, I'm not sitting here pretending to be Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, we, we, we're here to discuss the research center. Uh, we're here to discuss help going forward. But beyond the mere financial, intellectually, there, I think there's quite a few economists in the room, what is the contribution? that people in this room or people watching can make in terms of uh, the MMH?
0: Yeah, it's, it, it, I, I mentioned a few collaborators uh, already. I think, um, particularly if you read the book, there are very many topics that I suspect uh, students, young scholars, but even senior academics are interested in. And in a way, almost, they, they need to be further developed as part of the MMH. And to some extent, perhaps people can uh, create their own niche uh, with it. So, if you're interested in it, um, let me or my other collaborators know. Uh, perhaps write, draft a first paper, and in that way, uh, you know, we can uh, we can develop the MMH together, and we can spread the words, etc. And there, are, there are enormous opportunities, I think, because the the the, the, the conviction growing conviction that something in economics needs to change is there and i think the mmh is a is a, you know a, a strong candidate to uh, to push this and to drive this
2: let's discuss reflexivity for those people in the audience who are in the financial markets is one of those few well known theories of finance that contradict uh, the efficient markets hypothesis and i think generally accepted by many people from their observations every day, this theory of Soros, theory of reflexivity. Maybe explain what it is, explain how that might fit within MMH's confirmation or not of what MMH is about. I mean, you talked about it in general terms in in Soros here, but more specifically, the theory of reflexivity and and where it fits here and what it it might mean.
0: Yeah, it's important to remember that uh, Soros studied at the London School of Economics under Karl Popper. And Karl Popper wrote a paper on the mind-body problem. And Soros, many people don't know this, but his first post-graduation paper was not about investing, but it had the title The Burden of Consciousness. And in everything, if you read carefully what Soros wrote, then uh, what he reflexivity is, in a way the economic inter- early interpretation of this uh, mind matter interaction in the economic system, and as those of you who, who know a bit of as investors on reflexivity, Soros specifically talks about prices impacting the fundamentals, whereas according to the, to the mainstream theory. Prices only should reflect fundamentals. And moreover, then you get into things like momentum, where prices impact prices. And so in other words, reflexivity is, was a very early but important um, insight from an, a, a, a smart investor on how mind-matter interaction works in the economic system.
2: One more question before we go to the floor. You've described uh, Adam Smith as the father of cognitive economics. Do you want to explain more more formally where this relationship is between where we are now and, and what Smith was writing about in the 18th century?
0: Yes, um, some of you may know that uh, particularly by German intellectuals, um, uh, a a supposed problem was raised, and they called it Das Adam-Smith-Problem, translated the (laughs) Adam-Smith-Problem, where supposedly there was a conflict between what he wrote in the theory of moral sentiments and what he wrote in The Wealth of Nations. This has since already been uh, debunked, um, but it's important to understand that um, the theory of moral sentiments was an early exploration of cognitive science. Um, and then the Wealth of Nation was an early exploration of economics. Therefore, Smith was the first cognitive economist. Yeah.
2: Well, I'm sure if he was around today, he'd be spending a lot of time with exactly the people you're trying to spend and spending yes.
0: time with here. To
2: try and flesh out the theory of moral sentiments. I'm not sure the Wealth of Nations he would do much work to, but it was the very last thing he worked on was the theory of moral sentiments, so he knew there was work to be done. Uh, I know we've got lots of economists in the room, so I'm expecting lots of questions. So, uh, can we begin? Does anyone want to put their hand up with a with a question for Patrick? Right at the very back of the room, David, right beside you. Thanks. Um, Where does technical analysis fit into this, Patrick?
0: Just a moment. I'm just connecting. Just hold it. Shall I hold it? Yeah. Just hold it. Yes. So. in my career, uh, I did technical analysis. I'm a CMT as well. Um, and hold, hold it a bit closer. Closer? Yeah. Um, so technical analysis is uh, uh, a method to capture, to a large extent, psychology, in particular, herd behavior. Eugene Fama, for example, acknowledged that momentum is the most stubborn and um, misunderstood anomaly in the markets, and momentum is, 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 is part of, of technical uh, analysis. Um, so I think it is, uh, uh, together with uh, some quantitative analysis and fundamental analysis, part of the toolbox for investors. However, it will not capture mood, and I hope I made that clear. We need r- new research methods and tools to capture this, this, this mood, this phenomenality in markets. And um, uh, 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 so technical analysis, as the word already says, is analysis, but we need something else. So whatever technical analysis tries to capture, I think it is more sentiment rather than mood.
2: David, we need you right down at the front. I think we've got a question right down here. Thank you. Um, You're talking quite a lot about markets uh, in the context of trading. Um, Trading is currently done by people, although increasingly by machines. Um, My understanding of what you're saying about consciousness in this context is that there's something happens when people are in markets that generates a sort of third-party-ness around the collective consciousness, the, the kind of mind of the market. Um, I wonder what your analysis is on what will happen when there are more AIs who are market operators, particularly in trading, and whether you would expect to see the same effect or whether that's predicated on something that's particularly human in your mind.
0: Yeah, I worry about, about that, and I write about it much more in, in the book, um, where, um, uh, let's say, the awareness Um, and the sense-making of uh, humans uh, is slowly crowded out, uh, where even you can argue from a statistical point of view, whereas previously the prices were, um, as as the term is called, human volume, um, is more and more mechanical volume of of prices. And um, if prices, um, in a way, um, reflect our total uh, mentality, so not only a conclusion of our analysis, but our, our a conclusion of our sense-making, etc. if that is uh, crowded out, we get to this complete automaton, and then you get, for example, what, uh, what I said about Jack Bogle, if passive investing, which is one way of um, basically an algorithm, it, it's not only AI, but, but a fairly simple algorithm, is that slowly takes over, then I think the whole purpose of markets is is, is at risk so um, i I'm, I'm, I'm concerned and i, I explain it more in, in the book but but there are a number of aspects to this including the statistical right i mean the 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 the, the previous data contains different information i think than if it is increasingly just mechanical in why well, I think generally that that, that there are a few problems with the economic system and if mechanization begets mechanization and and it's not only in the the financial markets but in the real economy too, then whatever we benefited from in, in real markets and in financial markets is I think at risk because you know, that this is what humanomics, uh, et cetera, these type of heterodox theories also talk about, that it's almost being crowded out.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's important to remember that these prices are important. They're not just numbers dancing across the screen. They, They are signals for economic activity. They get involved in the allocation of resources. Those are our resources. So I think someone who doesn't follow financial markets might just think it's some great big game but as we've discovered in the examples you've given, this has real-world consequences for, for all of us, and making the market mind mad, which maybe perhaps would be the result of that. A mad market mind means mad things for the real world. Yes,
0: and, and the only thing I, I, I want to add to that is many of the mechanized strategies via algorithms, etc., use what I call internal data, namely market data. So bid ask, momentum prices, passive investing, it's just market cap. There's no translation to the data in the real economy, right? And that is the external data. So um, CTA, trading strategies, passive investing, high frequency trading, all of that is internal data. So the link is completely, that's why to some extent I, I think it explains why financial markets can run away from the real fundamentals and ultimately, this comes, again, back to this mind matter, right? Where, where, where is our awareness and sense-making for the e- economics, and where is it crowded out? So there's a question somewhere at the back. Yep.
1: Yeah. Yeah, um, I do have a question. I'm just going to, first of all, just comment on the point around using AI and algos. Having traded algorithms in the past and done pretty well at it, I can tell you that it's very difficult to not interfere and turn them off when it 's either losing too much money or making too much money, so maybe the MMH still applies even if you 've got an AI bot running when your own money's on the line, you still want to interfere with it but my, my question I guess for you is do you think how much do you think we have to lay the blame of introducing mathematics into economics in terms of trying to turn it into a pseudo physics is that something, and I think removing maths from it is that part of the part of cutting the, one of the limbs off the black The,
0: um, the t- Two main points I want to make first, um, and, and this is why I like I, I work with Scott Kelso and Carl Friston, etc. Um, if you to some extent accept that there is this mind working in the markets, then you need to use different math. So math is fine, but it's the wrong math, they say. And Gergi Gorenzo has said this also. The second point is that if you look at at the history of how uh, mainstream economics evolved and emerged, um, I argue in the book that the cart was put before the horse. So um, the theory had to fit this deep desire to model and to put everything into mathematics. So the theory followed, let alone the empirics. And I mean, t- t- to me, it, w- it was stunning that uh, Robert Lucas, just before the global financial crisis, said that we've solved all the depressions, etc. Right? I mean, even afterwards, in some of the autobiographies of central bankers, there's still d- denial that these are empirical facts, these events that tell you something. And part of the problem is mathematics, but not totally. We just need to adjust mathematics.
2: Yeah, I, I mentioned in the introduction that when you're a practitioner and you want to know about market psychology or psychology or crowd psychology, people say, well, go and read Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, it was written in the 1840s. And then they said, well, you can graduate that from Gustave Le Bon's The Crowd, written in the 1890s. And if you really want to get up to date, there's, uh, is it Canetti? Uh, the Crowd in Power, written in the 1960s. It's quite remarkable, given how much we are in a crowd and feel in a crowd, just how little time we spend uh, properly looking at it. I tried to hire two people as guest lecturers for the, the course that this charity runs on crowd psychology. Asked the first one would he come and uh, give us a lecture on crowd psychology. He said he he felt uncomfortable talking to people in finance because he had studied the crowd psychology of football hooligans. And I said, well, you might might find out that there's actually quite a lot in common there. And the the second one said he felt uncomfortable because he'd studied the crowd psychology of the police. So inherently, this is crowd psychology, and yet we spend so little time trying to understand it. Do you think that's a legacy of the mathematization of... Finance slash investment slash economics, we know it's there, and yet we spend so little time looking at. it. Is it? We just think we can't un- possibly understand it.
0: Yeah, I think that that, that, that is that is part that is a large uh, a part of it. Um, and as I said before, in in fairness, the, the the if you want to go beyond the sentiment, so yes, you can code your indicators to get to this sentiment thing, but uh, to, to capture what I think is the most Im- important, is this uh, mood thing, in the sense we need different tools, and uh, the, 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 uh, the t- type of methods used in, in economics now, or in finance, is not um, applicable to that uh, more interaction, that dynamic uh, stuff. Um, and just to give a, a hint, right, I mean, um, Victor Niederhofer, who you also know, is, is um, he blew himself up, financially speaking, three times. But um, apart from that, he um, did uh, something uh, very remarkable. And to, in order to capture the dynamics within all these markets, he created very early on, on a computer, um, sounds to complement whatever he was doing analytically. In Excel spreadsheets, etc, so to to use a different um, sense in addition to um, you know looking etc uh, these are the type of tools totally different way of uh, getting to grips with this crowd this mood thing this overlay where where the crowd mood can even you know swamp your own mood you can be bullish, but if the market goes down, that mood totally takes over. And so, again, long-winded uh, answer.
2: Well, Niederhofer was slightly different. He's got one chapter in his book is Music and Speculation, and the second one is Sex and Speculation. So a bit different from the average book on finance.
0: Yeah, we, we should get him as a guest speaker here. <laughs>
2: I don't think he's around anymore. He, yeah, he oh, is. He, 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 OK, yes. but, but, okay. Uh, any final question for Patrick? Uh, there is one right down the front, David, as you
0: If the market.
2: Is the global consciousness for economics and resource allocation? Are there other global consciousnesses for other aspects of human life? And
0: small follow-up: Are you running away from physics envy and accidentally stumbling into biology envy instead? <laughs> yes. Um, on on the second uh, a question, uh, I follow. Uh, I, I, I follow the lead of uh, some cognitive sci- scientists, where, um, uh, whereas there was the naturalizing the mind previously, there is now the uh, biological or organic turn, as it's called, where um, the realization is that there's something special about biological uh, entities and consciousness. So a um, uh, kind of I may, but I'm following the lead of others. So then, others are. And on the on the first question, um, I discussed it in the book. So, for example, the internet of, or Wikipedia or whatever. The internet could be an example of. Um, and uh, Christoph Koch, who is one of the neuroscientists who is promoting uh, uh, integrated information theory as a as a theory on consciousness, um, strangely uh, says that group consciousness cannot uh, exist, but he does recognize Internet as kind of a group uh, awareness. The difference is, and I, I, again, I explain this in the book much more, is that in the markets, the um, importance of uh, surviving uh, where, uh, you know, we're living in the economic jungle. We, we move from nature's jungle to the economic. The, 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 this this idea of ex- existence existentialism etc surviving is much more prominent in markets than in the internet and therefore I would make the case that um, the consciousness in markets is much more uh, pronounced and more important Thank you so.
2: We're looking for volunteers, as you can tell, to take this forward. So whatever form of volunteering you want to do, just email me at keeper at We are here to change the world one mistake at a time. That is our main statement. This would be a big one. Uh, and if you'd like to help, uh, get in touch. That's the market mind hypothesis. Patrick, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Library of Mistakes is based in Edinburgh. To explore it in person, simply visit libraryofmistakes.com, register as a reader and book your visit. It's all free. And to enjoy little nuggets from our extensive collection of books, watch videos of our talks and keep up to date with what we're up to, do follow us on X, LinkedIn and Instagram. Also, if you'd like to learn more about the world of investment, the Library of Mistakes runs an outstanding course called The Practical History of Financial Markets. To find out more, please see the link in the show notes. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Library of Mistakes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast platform of your choice.